0: Hello and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. My name is Monica Sorensen, Marketing Manager at LexisNexis Canada. I would like to introduce our guest for today, Victoria Schroff. Victoria Schroff is credited as being one of the first and longest serving animal law practitioners in Canada. Often referred to as a trailblazer, she has practiced animal law in downtown Vancouver at Shroff & Associates, also known as Shroff Animal Law, for more than 20 years and has been teaching animal law at UBC's Allard School of Law since 2016. Ms. Shroff also created and taught the first animal law course for paralegals at Capilano University in 2019, where she is faculty in the School of Legal Studies. In 2020, she helped spearhead Canada's first animal law pro bono clinic. She also established and chairs the National Canadian Animal Law Study Group. Ms. Shroff has appeared at all levels of court in in British Columbia and filed BC's first landmark dangerous dog case for leave to appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada. She frequently writes about animal law issues for legal and mainstream publications such as the Lawyer's Daily, and is a regular speaker at animal conferences and law schools around the world. I would like to thank Victoria for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me here. I'm delighted to be here.
0: So let's talk a bit about your upcoming book that you have with LexisNexis on Canadian animal law. So we had a professor do a review already, Professor Manisha Decca, an animal law scholar and professor. She has written, this is the go-to book for the legal profession, law students, and the wider public. Readers new to the area, as well as seasoned advocates, will learn from Schroff's seemingly endless and outstanding expertise in animal law. So what inspired you to write this
1: publication? Well, um, so as as you said in your kind introduction, I have been doing animal law for over 20 years, and um, part of that is being a bit of an ambassador to as an animal law lawyer for the the whole field, so I've I've lectured in Canada and abroad, as far away as um, places in India. This is before COVID, and so I've actually had the opportunity to interact with people in person. And the teaching I've been doing all the way up from uh, scouts groups and general members of the public at elder colleges to law schools. So it's not this book is not just written for. Um, People in law. It's written for the wider public, and the inspiration behind it is the fact that um, I've always loved animals. I've all, my life has always been intertwined with animals. I was born in Africa, not far from the Serengeti, and um, so I've always had this this real respect and kinship with animals. And so it's animals who inspired me to write this book. Wow, that's great. I can tell you're really passionate about the subject. Uh, So
0: when people hear the words animal law, even myself included, they tend to think exclusively of pets or wildlife. Uh, Your book really explores both of these topics in detail. Can you tell us a bit more about other legal
1: situations that may apply to animals? Sure, sure. Well, I'll back up for just a second. Just say, what is animal law? Because most people don't even know Such a discipline exists. And so I start off many of my lectures, even to other lawyers, um, explaining just what animal law is. And it's black letter law in a furry package. Just to, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's actually quite true. It's really about animals and how they intersect with the law. And that can be anywhere from constitutional issues to cruelty involving criminal law even the charter of freedoms. It can be related to pet custody, um, which in this context would mean if a a couple or two people uh, split up, who gets to keep the dog at the dissolution of the relationship? Um, It can be veterinary malpractice. It can, just any area that you can imagine of the law could touch um, that has anything to do with animals is animal law, effectively. So dangerous dogs, there's a, there's a huge list. And we're talking about municipal intersection, provincial intersection of law, and federal. So they're all levels of law that are intertwined when you talk about animal law. And I've tried to capture all of that in the book. Um, and not just talking about cats and dogs, which is what most people would associate with animal law. And that's you know, that's a big part of it for an urban practice. Um, But I've had a lot of different um, interactions with wildlife cases and doing wildlife work, um, such as fur farming. And, um, and so there's, I could, I could go on, but um, you get the idea. Basically, anytime the law and an animal intersects, we could say it's animal law. Wow, that's
0: great. That's definitely quite a thorough definition. (laughs) Um, Can you share a few examples with us of legal cases you argued on animal rights? Sure. Uh, I have a quote here from Chief Justice of BC, Honourable Judge Bauman. Uh, It is to be acknowledged that animals are deeply entwined in our cultural, social, and economic lives, whether we are talking about animals as pets Animals as part of our industrial food supply system, animals as sentient beings in need of protection from inhumane treatment or even animals involved in criminal offenses. Uh, What are your thoughts about this? Can you provide a few instances where you have successfully defended animals?
1: Yes, well, we've had um, over the over the years. um, It's not to say that you win every case; that's impossible to say. But I have had a lot of different success with, for example, um, dangerous dog cases, where let's say, for example, a dog is actually on death row. That is not an exaggerated statement to say, because a dog could lose his or her life um, for allegedly biting or harming somebody. So there's there's a case, for example. Called RV Sim, and that's one of the cases that I did uh, fairly recently. Um, It was a bylaw case, and um, our um, client had a dog who was accused of harming and biting somebody, and uh, we proved otherwise in court. And the dog, who was a therapy dog, ended up being able to continue their amazing work and um, in care homes and Alzheimer's facilities. So, you know, it it really these are the cases that come back to to you years later too. That they inspire you to keep going um, and to to say, you know, these animals. Surely, there's a better way to take them out of the property paradigm and say, we do not need to kill animals um, to to be able to um, you know have justice. And when I when I hear quotes from um, Honorable Chief Justice Bauman his words really strike me as being all about equity and access to justice for animals and and how we need to consider animals. So I was I was just so um, amazed when I got his quote back to me when I asked you know my question about how you know what what is the impact of animal law and and um, and I just I mean to hear this from from a Chief Justice was absolutely amazing I'm so grateful And um, we also, um, in the case law, we've had quotes from, um, for example, the Chief Justice of Alberta, Catherine Fraser, who is another absolutely amazing jurist, and her words in a case uh, concerning an elephant called Lucy are probably some of the greatest words ever written in any judgment, in my view. In the Western world about animal law. And um, that, that case goes back years ago. It wasn't my case. It is just uh, an amazing case for any student or any member of the public to read who may be interested in animal law. And I, I talk about that case a lot in my book. Other cases I've had success in would be, for example, defending um, animals from being thrown out of their homes, um, whether that be in a residential tenancy situation or in a condominium situation where they say, no, you can't have your animal and your animal has to leave. And, you know, what my basic tenant here is that animals are part of the family. They are not just some thing, some object. Um, and that, that's sort of a starting point. And I would, and I've seen quotes, um, by other people, and also polls that make it really clear that most people really do believe animals are part of the family, particularly companion animals, meaning cats and dogs. And sometimes it's extended to horses as well. So this is something that's become really apparent that the role and place of animals in our world, within our law, has increased to the point where animals need to be accorded some respect. And part of that comes into the form of rights for animals, but we're never gonna have rights for animals until we have human respect and responsibility toward animals. So we come from this agrarian society many, many years ago where animals were treated as no more than automatons, things, tools. Um, entertainers, all of these things. And now we're seeing, you know what, hey, it's not realistic to have whales in tiny tanks performing for people in Aquaria. It's not fair to have elephants behind bars in zoos standing on concrete slabs. You know, so all of these amount to human responsibility. So I've done a lot of behind the scenes work in many, many cases over the 20 years as well. And most animal law cases are not reported. So I am not at liberty to get into details of some of the work that I've done. And I, of course, um, maintain that confidentiality with my clients throughout the book. But what I do is I do um, give examples of cases that are reported, not necessarily just my cases, other cases that are out there, um, and, and show why I think that we are at a time and place in history where the evolving dialogue on animals and the law has come to a head and we are ready to embrace animal law, not only as a real discipline in and of itself, but to also say, you know, this is something that the public is also greatly interested in. And, um, you know, what what we're doing is we're, we're actually analyzing the very purpose of the law because property does not have rights. Individuals have rights. And animals are individuals with intrinsic worth. And I say in the book, I say, isn't it time that we really examined the rights of animals in Canada? And, you know, rights are simply a way of acknowledging and protecting legal interests. Rights are not finite. They can be expanded. Um, you know, at one point, women didn't have uh, the right to vote. People of color didn't have the right to vote. It wasn't until 1960, 1960 in Canada, that every woman was allowed to vote who was of voting age. So, a very long-winded um, answer for you there, Monica. But just to kind of give you some of the the background of where this comes from and and how quotes like the chief justices. Have such a big impact, and why I've featured it boldly in the book.
0: Wow, that's great! Definitely, lots of context and uh, a lot to think about there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so, going over your biography and your endless list of achievements, um, you you're definitely multifaceted. You're a lawyer, a teacher, an author, and an advocate with over 20 years of experience in animal law. So, what was your favorite? part about writing
1: this book and your favorite part about working with animals ah that's a great question um I think you know one of my favorite parts about writing the book aside from the endless um burning the midnight oil hours that I put in doing it because I had to carry on my practice and my teaching while I was doing it and my other passion projects I I you know my students Um, sort of helped me inspire inspire me to write and had been kind of I guess in a way part of the impetus for writing because there isn't a book like this um, that's been written in the last at least 10 years and it was sort of it was it was time to get writing and it was also something that I said you know um, I I guess it's 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 a it it is a real passion to practice in this area. I feel really really grateful to be one of the first in Canada doing this, um, and as such, I get to kind of um, set some groundwork in motion for the next generation of animal law lawyers who are coming up. And it's it's really really rewarding being being a teacher, and you know not just teaching law students, but paralegals, and as I say, elementary school students as well. I teach a program called Pause of Empathy, P A W S, where I um, bring well-socialized animals into a classroom, and I teach about animal empathy and access to justice and animal law to kids as young as six. Um, so, it, it, this this kind of book, I think, I've written it in a in a in an easy. Accessible way because part of access to justice is having accessible information uh, for people to to be able to say you know we can we can understand this book it's not written in in uh, legalese and tons of jargon um, it it recognizes first and foremost that humans and animals are both sentient beings so I'm I've written this book for animals and also for humans so in one of the chapters of the book you discuss about the future of animal law. Where do you see it headed in Canada? Ah, Well, I think at some, I I would say this to you, Monica. I think the animal law of 2021 will not be recognizable in 2041. 20 years from now, which I hope to still be practicing. I I assume I will be. um, We're going to see a huge paradigm shift would have happened by then. It just will be unrecognizable. We're going to see the conversation on animals and the law widen further and further and we're going to go beyond this notion of animal rights and advocacy circles. We're going to be out in the general public and people will be understanding that you know it is so wrong to think of animals as property. I think that's one of the biggest shifts that we're going to see is this notion that animals are dispensable somehow, that they are to be um, used by humans. And I'm going to quote from the Honorable Chief Justice of Alberta, who I mentioned earlier, um, because uh, her groundbreaking work in the dissent for Lucy the zoo elephant. It's a short quote. She said that paragraph 54 of a judgment in, of Lucy the elephant, she says the past 250 years have seen a significant evolution in the law relating to animals though admittedly not as far as many might consider warranted. We have moved from a highly exploitive era in which humans had the right to do with animals as they saw fit to the present where some protection is accorded under laws based on an animal welfare model, unquote. So when I look at the words of, I mean, the Chief Justice of Alberta, who is incredibly empathetic and understanding of animals and and tells says that you know courts should interpret laws and obligations towards animals generously that gives me a lot of hope for my belief that the animal law of the future is going is it's being written now we're putting into place the groundwork for what's going to happen in 20 years from now and we're going to see that you know we're not going to have as many courts sort of say, uh, you know, animal law is kind of a waste of time, you know, whether or not they say those words directly, I think we're going to be seeing a whole lot less of that. When you see the words, for example, of Justice Hogue, who um, wrote an amazing dissent in, in a case called Baker v. Harmina in 2018. So again, it's a court of appeal level case was writing about a um, division of a dog, so to speak, a division. I mean, you can't divide a sentient being. And she said, you know, that we have to, I'm not quoting directly, but she was saying, you know, the, how we decide who gets an animal at the end of the day in a relationship is a lot more nuanced than who gets to keep a bicycle. And, you know, it's, it, it, this is, this is where I think we're going to see the dissents of these very erudite and amazingly um, forward-thinking judges come in as the majority decision. And so when I had the chance to um, help with a team of lawyers here in Vancouver, take a case all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, we we applied for leave. Um, and it's amazing. It was almost exactly two years ago to the day that we got um, leave granted um, because we had to You had to have leave to apply for leave from our Court of Appeal. And um, I got to read in all of these amazing quotes from the best dissents out there in Canada and also looking at some of the forward-thinking laws in the UK. I think we're going to see more and more of um, things like the Jane Goodall Act that have been proposed by then Senator Murray Sinclair, um, and it's called the Jane Goodall Act. And I hope that this would come into law, which recognizes uh, animals and um, as, as, as a lot more than just um, hunks of property. So I, I could go on, but I think in the end we're going to see, uh, Monica, a, a global shift where we're going because I interact with groups all the time across the world not just through my Canadian animal law study group but before that uh, not just by going there in person and lecturing but by creating these connections um, we see for example what's going on in the UK oh what's happening in and and in various parts of Asia what are they doing there that we could borrow from what can they learn from us when I was in Japan people were asking me you know oh uh, we think that you guys are doing really well, for example, with um, banning um, shark finning and things like that. So so we've had some successes in Canada, um, not as many as we need, but we have had some success with, um, with legislative change as well. And I've been uh, working on legislative change from the municipal uh, level on up, including um, liaising with the uh, federal um, all-party animal caucus in Ottawa. So I wow. might have been a little off track there in my answer because it's just. <laughs> That's okay. It's it's interesting that we can definitely
0: learn from other countries and, and what they're doing with animal law as well. I, I hadn't really thought about that before. But yeah, there's a lot to learn um, fr- around the world. Definitely.
1: Yes, yes, and I and I tried to put that in my book that you know um, we have two systems of law. We don't just have the Western colonial system; we also have the Indigenous system. And I think to talk about animal law without mentioning Indigenous voices in Canada is completely wrong. Um, I think that needs to come out a lot more. And I've tried to include where I could in my book, including at the beginning of every chapter, where I have an acknowledgement of um, the Indigenous view of specific animals. So all the chapters, for example, have, um, you know, one chapter is called bear, another maybe called um, wolf, you know, things like that. And then putting the, in, the Indigenous significance behind that into the book. And um, that's, that's been really important to me. The CEO of Humane Canada has said
0: that each animal possesses intrinsic value, remarkable complexity and inherent dignity, and as such is deserving of respect and moral concern. Canada needs to restructure its legal framework that governs animals, recognizing they are sentient beings and embracing its responsibilities with regard to their interests. Did Barbara's words inspire you to help spearhead Canada's first animal law pro bono clinic? I saw that you set this up in 2020, so let's talk a bit more about that.
1: Right, Um, you know, Barbara Cartwright has been a leader in animal uh, welfare for a very long time and the work of Humane Canada and a lot of our ally groups have definitely been part of the impetus for this. Um, The idea, however, for the um, Animal Law Pro Bono Clinic at um, the Law Students Legal Advice Program in Vancouver I will add the first of its kind in Canada um, actually started with the germ of an idea in 2016 so long before I started writing the book or thinking about writing a book. um, My students at the end of class after the seminar had ended at. The Allard School of Law, where I teach animal law, they said, you know, can what do we do now with our with our class information that we've learned, and how can we practice? How can we get opportunities? So I gave private opportunities to several of my students, um, giving them um, the ability to work on some files, coming with me to some guest speaking appearances and things like that. But it really it wasn't enough. I thought, how can we do something that also addresses the crisis? In um, people accessing justice, not having enough for uh, people with animal law issues to be able to get their needs heard. So I thought of this idea of having a clinic if we could possibly make it run. So, you know, it was years in the making. And finally, um, along with the support of um, one amazing um, experiential learning guru, I call him. Um, it's, there's a, a professor at Allard called um, Nikos Harris QC, and he, he really helped um, by s- helping me spearhead the clinic along with our students and my co-teacher at the time, um, Amber Prince, who is now an adjudicator at the BC Human Rights Tribunal. And so we, we figured out a way to make this work so that it was a clinic that is a win for community uh, that it serves, it is a win for the students And of course, it is a win for animals, for low-income people to get their needs heard. So speaking of access to justice,
0: you are very active on speaking about animal law, doing a lot of engagements and interviews. And you were recently interviewed by Psychology Today, uh, I have a quote here from Mark Beckoff from the interview, and he wrote, I recently learned of a wide-ranging book by award-winning Canadian lawyer and educator Victoria Schroff titled Canadian Animal Law that caught my interest because it clearly shows how laws that apply to non-human animals intersect with more mainstream practice areas, including family law, criminal law, wills and estates, environmental law, and professional liability. Her book made me think about other pieces I've done with lawyers, that show just how interconnected animal law is with many different aspects of the ways in which humans live with non-humans. Besides psychology today, do you have any other upcoming events you are attending?
1: Yes, I actually usually have a fairly steady stream of invitations to speak at animal law conferences, I've just finished speaking this past weekend at the Canadian Animal Law Conference. I'll be speaking at um, a Canadian Violence Link Conference for Humane Canada next month. I've got several guest speaking appearances at colleges and universities. And I continue to do um, my interviews. I do a fair number of media interviews, usually one or two a week um, on different animal law issues that are hitting the news which is to really say how important um, people uh, find animals in the law as a topic is. And, you know, just for looking at, for example, Dr. Beckoff's article that he did last month about the book and about the practice area, it just shows us that, you know, we've moved from this era, as I said earlier in the podcast, where animals were seeing as really um, nothing more than automatons. And now we're seeing that you know the justifications for using animals that were based on these these massive categorical differences have been eroded. We've really seen that you know animals are really not that far off from humans. Many many people think of animals, especially companion animals, as their children at home, and we have you know we have we have a different notion of how animals uh, intersect with the law than we did even a decade ago. So I think you know one of my messages in in when i talk about access to justice because it underlies all of the guest speaking all of the teaching a major message through the book is also that we really should be facing the future of animal law in canada with optimism there are signs of hope that these foundations upon which the property paradigm, and now I'm quoting a little bit from the book, the very last page, that the foundation upon which the property paradigm has been built is eroding. And that the old justifications for keeping animals locked in the property cage are evolving. So that's just a, a tiny quote from the book itself. And, and I think that, you know, it, it really is part of my message um, for people to get the understanding that they need for animals to start treating them with respect. When I was on CBC uh, News about a, just, I think, about a week ago, talking about the coyotes in Stanley Park and people feeding them, it's wrong. These animals are becoming habituated and it's now then causing people to have to cull them, which I hate the idea of killing animals. And I think we need to have better solutions and they are out there. We just need to start applying better solutions. And a lot of um, the impetus behind these better solutions starts with an educational platform. And that's really what my practice, teaching and writing is all about.
0: Actually, just on that note, on the news in my area, we actually had a three-year-old boy who got bit by a coyote in his backyard.
1: Yes, and, and yeah. it's, the, it's, it's horrifying. It's a nightmare for the child and the parents. And a large part of why these incidents are happening in urban centers and even in rural areas is because people are misguidingly feeding animals. And so my constant refrain in the CBC and wherever else I'm interviewed is that it's not Disney. Animals are not there for um, becoming playmates and playthings in the wild. They are wild animals and they need to be accorded respect. We shouldn't be feeding them or trying to take selfies with them and and getting them habituated to humans. And that's when they come in close and um, negative incidents happen with small children or other people.
0: It's true. Disney has almost made this personification of animals, and I think it, it can be a little misleading to people that they they see animals, um, exactly as you said, as objects to take pictures with and, and feed, but they, they need to be aware that they're not the same as humans.
1: No, no, exactly. That's right, Monica. And I mean, these people will end up in court. We just had one of the largest fines ever in um, BC history of c- a $60,000 fines going for a woman who was feeding bears for, I think it was three years in Whistler BC. And so a $60,000 fine is sending a pretty strong strong message to people that this is wrong, and it's also against the law. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. Like if people really want to know, feeding animals, especially in, in BC, the wording is feeding dangerous animals. Um, it's illegal and people have to stop. So I'm, I'm happy when the law steps in and they give heavy fines and, um, I, and they prosecute.
0: So I'm curious, you're an animal lover. Does that mean you own any pets?
1: Well, and I don't say own. The, if anything, they own me. <laughs> but, I'm sure, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so uh, yeah, I've been an animal guardian for, since the beginning, I mean, I was born, as I say, in Africa, not far from the Serengeti, and that that basically sets you up for life, for always having animals in your home. And you know, I mean, I I get to I get to work with animals and deal with animals. Um, um, one of my cats was definitely a huge help in writing the book. At you know, when you're writing at one a.m. in the morning, and you have a tuxedo cat looking at you sleepily and telling you it's time to finally go to bed um and also to cheer you on it's it's wonderful um i think animals are absolutely irreplaceable they're individuals with you know they just have so much to offer we're we're Sometimes I say to myself, animals are too good for us. You know, you look into the eyes of your dog and you wonder, you know, like, what are, what are they thinking? You know, they're just they're just looking at you with unconditional, unbridled affection and joy. And I think the world needs a whole lot more of that.
0: Yes, I definitely agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Victoria, for spending some time chatting with me today. For anyone who's listening, who's interested in purchasing a copy of Victoria's book on Canadian Animal Law, it's available on the LexisNexis Canada website, slash store. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share?
1: I'm just really grateful to LexisNexis for um, publishing this book. It's uh, definitely a kind of a -a one-of-a-kind book, um, if I do say so myself. And I hope that uh, people enjoy it and learn something from it. And the takeaway would be that they realize that animals are out there for, um, you know, being part of our lives in a way where we can say the law needs to accord respect to them. Um, But we start at an individual level where every person who comes into contact with an animal will begin to look at them differently and with a lot more empathy.